Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is a production of PolicyForum.net, which is based at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Has your work been affected by COVID-19? If so, have you thought of upskilling or changing your career? As part of the Australian government's relief package, ANU is now offering a range of new short courses and Crawford is accepting applications for our new graduate certificate of environmental management online. This degree will provide you with an understanding of current issues and approaches to environmental management of current regulatory and policy frameworks and the ability to contribute to the governance of environmental sustainability and disasters. It's a really exciting thing to do. So find out more and get all the details on how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now we're just about to get started with this week's episode but before we do I'd like to ask have you heard of our Ask Policy Forum podcast series? If not, that might be because you're not yet a member of our pod squad. So now is the time to change that. Join us on Facebook where we are Policy Forum Pod and you can get access to this special pod series. It's the podcast where you take the reins and you can ask us absolutely anything and we'll get the experts together to answer your questions. So hit pause here just for a second. Join us on Facebook and send us your questions for the upcoming instalment of Ask Policy Forum. We're looking forward to seeing you there. Now, economies around the world are bearing the brunt of COVID-19 restrictions and governments have rallied to protect their markets. In April, Australia's unemployment rate grew a full percentage point to 6.2%. That's the country's largest ever monthly jump in unemployment. To ease the burden on the population and protect the economy, federal and state governments launched unprecedented stimulus packages. The federal government's job seeker payment forms a large part of this effort. More than 1.6 million people are currently receiving the unemployment benefit, which for a single person with no children sits at a little over $1,165 per fortnight. That's nearly double the rate before the COVID-19 crisis. But the $550 coronavirus supplement is due to expire in September, and many are asking what should happen next to the job seeker payment. And to discuss this question, we've invited Professor Peter Whiteford into our virtual podcast studio today. Peter is a professor at Crawford School and he was previously the principal administrator in the Director of Employment, Labour and Social Affairs at the OECD in Paris. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? 
Thanks again for uh, joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you back on. So first of all, for the benefit of our listeners, can you briefly explain the difference between JobKeeper and JobSeeker? Well, as you said, JobSeeker is a social security payment. So it's a payment made by uh, Services Australia, what used to be called Centrelink. Uh, it's a um, it's a payment of um, a bit over $1,100 uh, a fortnight, as you said, which is um, about equivalent to 80% of the minimum wage. So it's a social security payment and it's just temporarily been increased by uh, the, what's called the coronavirus supplement. The, uh, there have also been other significant changes made to the, to the payment uh, temporarily in order to make it easier for people to uh, claim the payment. So the assets test that applied and the waiting periods that applied to the payment uh, haven't been operating since um, since the uh, coronavirus supplement was introduced. JobKeeper is a different payment. It's um, made to uh, employers in order to support uh, people who might otherwise lose their jobs. So it's um, it's about fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight. So it's actually equivalent to roughly equivalent to a full time minimum wage. It's paid in a more complicated way, uh, basically because. You need to have details of the employers in order to to give the payment to 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 the employers, who then have to pass it on to their to their workers. Now it appears as if there's more than six million workers receiving this. You could sort of think of it as a uh, a wage subsidy. As I said, it uh, you, you have to keep on the you have to you have to stay attached to the um, to the employer, and the employer has to pass on. Uh, the full fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight to their workers, uh, no matter what they had earned previously. So if they earned less than that, they um, uh, they, they might actually have a higher earnings. So, so, so to sum up, the the aim of JobKeeper is to um, keep people attached to um, uh, to their employers. JobSeeker is a social security payment that's designed to support people uh, at the moment when they become unemployed. Now, I said in the intro that uh, Australia had recently seen a very significant jump in its unemployment rate. Do you have any sense of what the unemployment rate is going to look like over the next few months? How many more people are going to be needing to access JobSeeker into into the future? Well, the the rise in the unemployment rate, which, as you said, is uh, I think probably the fastest on record in a single month, uh, is actually only a small part of the story. Uh, what's happened is uh, there's been a significant withdrawal from the labour force. So people who had jobs have um, no longer have jobs, at, and they're not looking for work, which is what uh, is the strict definition of the of unemployment. Uh, now that could be because they just don't think their jobs around, or it also could be because um, yeah, they may have various forms of family responsibilities that um, they think it's they, that they can't combine. You know, sort of uh, looking after their families or children at the moment, um, and also be looking for work. So, uh, I think there's an extra um, uh, six hundred thousand or so who are who are who, who dropped out of the labour force at the same time, uh, and then there's a lot of the people who are getting uh, JobKeeper plus others who have had their hours of work reduced or while still attached to their employer are actually not not actually putting in any hours of paid work because their employer is shut down so lots of cafes um, you know hotels restaurants and that sort of 
the, those sorts of uh, people as well as gyms, I assume, and they're a very wide range. So the labour market impact is already much, much bigger than is measured by the unemployment rate. And I think that if everybody had switched from their previous job into the unemployment rate, we'd be talking about an unemployment rate more like 13%, not 6%. Um, yeah, there's, there's a bit of controversy about how you measure it, but, but the effect on hours of work is much, much greater than um, the, the, the very large increase in unemployment. Now, even before the coronavirus crisis hit, there were plenty of people calling for a significant increase of new start of unemployment benefits. Do you believe that keeping the job seeker payment at its current rate is sustainable? Well, I think that there's both a yes and a no answer to that. Uh, the no answer is that um, the coronavirus supplement is only designed to be temporary and there are features of it which are not very sensible. Uh, in particular, you get the full supplement, um, which is about um, $275 a week, $550 a fortnight, only so long as you're getting some of the basic uh, job seeker payment. Um, now, what that means, for example, is if somebody was working um, about 27 hours a week at the minimum wage, um, they would still be getting a few dollars worth of job seeker and they would get the whole $550 worth of the supplement. However, if they were working 28 hours a week, um, so, um, they, would, um, they would completely lose the supplement. So what that means is at that point, uh, the take-home income of a, of a single person would drop from um, about $720 a week to $508 a week yeah, in, yeah, for an extra hour of work. So that's not very sensible. Uh, but the reason for it is that it's a temporary payment that's um, you know, designed to uh, fit the current crisis. That design is also probably not particularly problematic at the moment because, as I said, what's happened is that uh, people's hours of work have dropped very substantially. So it's not as if uh, you know, sort of they're sort of having to choose between 27 and 28 hours a week or their employer is sort of asking them to work an extra hour. That's not the situation we're in at the moment. Uh, but as we um, as we start to recover um, and as work uh, jobs open up and people go back to work, that will become more of an issue. Um, so that it it's also creates anomalies. So somebody um, uh, somebody working three hours a week and getting most of the uh, the payment at the moment would have a higher income than somebody uh, working 30 hours a week. So that sort of anomaly is not particularly desirable in equity terms. So I think the supplement uh, needs to be redesigned. Um, uh, and but so so when it's due to end in September, I think. Uh, it should be ended, but I think that we need to work out ways of um, of keeping the payment at an adequate level. Uh, before the um, before the supplement was added, uh, Australia the, the, the unemployment benefit for a single person in Australia was uh, the lowest replacement rate in the OECD. So if you lost your job, um, uh, you you lost more of your income in Australia than in any other high income country. So it's a so the the previous level of New Start. Um, which became job seeker payment, I think is unsustainable, unsustainably low. 
Now, you said that the, you know, job seeker was obviously a policy that was designed and rolled out in a hurry to meet a crisis situation. And it's clearly got some challenges in terms of its design. But what are some of those flaws of the policy that will need to be addressed going forward? What we need to do is have something which maintains an adequate level of income for people um, after September. Uh, but doesn't have this sort of sudden death loss of uh, most of the benefit when you reach a certain income level. So what you have to do is build an increase into the base rates of payment. Um, Now, the government doesn't seem to like that because that then becomes a uh, sort of permanent increase um, as opposed to the supplement is temporary, so it'll go away in September. The, the, the other issue which I think is really important, and uh, the Grattan Institute has pointed this out, um, Deloitte Access Economics, uh, and also Mike Keating, who was a former Secretary of the Department of Finance and head of the Prime Minister's Department in the 1990s, um, has also pointed out that if we just allow the job seeker payment and the job keeper payments to expire, uh, the incomes of millions of people will um, drop enormously um, late in September. So we would expect to have um, a double-dip recession. So I don't think the government can actually uh, allow the payments to completely expire. Um, So they have to work out how to phase it out and they have to work out how to structure the system going forward uh, that provides adequate support. Now, the government has been... Uh, pretty reticent in the past to consider raising the rate of the new start payments. So, do you think there is any hope that they might look to that September day and and go forward with the sort of uh, staged um, uh, sort of process that you're talking about there, or will it be uh, uh, sort of sort of falling off the cliff for those people on those benefits? Yeah, my understanding is that um, if you just have that sort of cliff where both the job keeper and the job seeker payment just ends, um, you'll have a massive loss of income amongst uh, the poorest members of the community. Now, uh, if you take the job keeper payment, um, as I said, apparently there's a bit over 6 million jobs being supported by that. Um, There's an estimate that... um, if it wasn't for JobKeeper, about a million of those would have would have joined the unemployment queue, um, uh, and it's also unclear what's going to happen to the to the other jobs. Whether you know um, the sort of hibernation theory that we've supposedly been having, that um, you know, sort of the, the worker and, and their employer sort of goes into deep freeze for a few months and then comes out of it. Um, if that doesn't work, we're going to have much, much higher unemployment uh, than we've had at any time since the Great Depression. Um, now, one of the lessons of the Great Depression, as I understand it, was that um, you don't keep cutting people's incomes uh, in a depression. You have to, you have to support them. Uh, and I think it's a, my, again, my reading of the sort of uh, a lot of the economists in Australia and also internationally is that we have to, we have to keep up uh, support for both the unemployed and the jobs. Now, the precise way you do that is, um, yeah, so there are probably quite a lot of ways of doing it, but um, I think that cliff where the payments, both pay- one payment disappears and the other one halves, um, would be a pretty much an economic disaster, really. Okay, well, let's take a quick break there, but when we come back, we'll continue uh, 
discussing this topic. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Peter Wyford is still here with me. And I want to turn to the recent Senate inquiry report into the adequacy of New Star stroke job seeker that was released last month. And one of the recommendations in that was that once the coronavirus supplement is phased out, the Australian government increase the job seeker payment, youth allowance and parenting payment rates to ensure that all eligible recipients do not live in poverty. Peter, what do we mean by poverty in this context? Well, uh, that's this not quite the $64,000 question, but getting on towards, towards it. I, I mean, poverty has is often a contested concept. Um, the most... Uh, Common way that's used in, uh, in in European countries uh, and is also used in research in Australia is to say someone's poor uh, when their disposable income is less than half the median income for the entire population. So uh, the median, you know, that people know, is the midpoint. Um, so exactly half the population are below it and half are above it. And, and if you take half the median, what you're saying is. Um, you're some distance away from what's the normal living standards in your society. So it's a measure of relative poverty. So the 50% of median income is, as I said, used in, in most Australian research uh, and it's also um, used in a lot of European um, policies, although in Europe they actually define people as being at risk of poverty if their income is less than 60% of the median. So it's a higher standard in many countries. The other sort of approach, which in many respects uh, corresponds to people's sort of intuitive understanding of poverty, is uh, you can use things called budget standards. Uh, these have been developed overseas. And basically what researchers do is they, they try to specify literally everything that people in defined circumstances need to have an adequate standard of living. So they, they work out what's a nutritious diet, they work out uh, how often you need to replace your, your clothing and your shoes, they, they work out how much you need to pay in rent, what your electricity bills would be depending on the number of people in the household and so on. And they build up from these uh, budget standards to an overall living standard. Now, when... Uh, the Social Policy Research Centre at the University of New South Wales um, has been doing this for some time. Now, when they have done this most recently, uh, they actually come up with a dollar figure that is um, sort of only a few dollars a week 
less than the 50% of median income poverty line. Uh, so, so that seems to be, uh, um, you know, these two different methods, which are the sort of main alternatives, come up with a number in Australia that's broadly similar. Uh, having said that, uh, there's a lot of technicalities in measuring poverty. Uh, and say, for example, uh, it depends on how you adjust for the number of people living in households, um, uh, you know, how much how much economies of scale do you think there are, you know, when there are two people living together compared to one person living by themselves and how much economies of scale there are for people with children. So, you know, do the number of bedrooms need to increase according to the number of people? Um, you know, the heating doesn't increase according to the number of people, probably the food does and things like this. So there's a, there's a degree of complexity in that and um, the Senate inquiry um, while its final recommendation, um, the, the majority of the Senate inquiry, which is non-government members, uh, recommended that when the coronavirus supplement is phased out, that payments be raised to keep people out of poverty. But their very first recommendation was that we need an inquiry into uh, how much the poverty line should be. Uh, so that sort of um, says we need to raise it to something, but they're not quite sure how much that is. Uh, so what I think is a basis in the short run is to um, raise the, the working age payments to the level of the pension. Uh, there's quite a wide gap between pension and benefit rates. Um, the pension rates were pretty comprehensively reviewed in 2008 by the Harmer Review, um, which uh, ended in, a, in recommending a very large increase in pensions at the time. And uh, while you know, there are situations in which people on pensions also uh, don't have adequate incomes, it's a much more adequate uh, level of income than uh, the old new start is. So my suggestion is that we should, in the first instance, raise uh, working age payments to the pension rates and then when we've got the time to have a look at uh, the poverty research and how you define the poverty line and reach consensus about what that means, uh, that you do that research after after September, not because um, it can't be finished before September. So what is what is that rate for the pensions and why that figure in particular? What it would do is it would mean that you would have uh, a uniform level of payment for all low-income people in Australia. Um, so, you know, whether you're unemployed, whether you have a disability, whether you're caring for somebody with disability, um, uh, whether you're a lone parent, whether you're, or, and, and whether you're aged over, um, it's about 65 and a half now to get the age pension. Um, so it, it gives a, it gives a common floor. It treats people equally. It, um, it, it follows a recommendation quite a long time ago now of the um, Henderson Inquiry into Poverty uh, back in the 1970s where um, uh, Professor Ronald Henderson from the University of Melbourne uh, was commissioned first by a coalition government um, before the 1972 election and was continued by the Labor government after that um, to have what was probably Australia's most comprehensive inquiry into poverty. And one of the very strong principles that the Henderson Inquiry put up was that um, payments should be based on people's needs, not on sort of arbitrary categories of um, 
either whether they're deserving or undeserving or uh, what particular age they are as well. So how much would the change that you are suggesting cost the government? And and can the government afford it? I mean, we've just come off the back of a period where the government has pumped, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars into propping up the economy and coming out the other side of this crisis, you'd imagine they're going to have to try and work out how they pay that pay that money back. Uh, can the government afford what it is that you're proposing and how much will it actually cost them to do that? Um, well, ju- just in terms of the costings, it primarily depends on how many people are receiving payments in September and going forward from that. So it Obviously, uh, the more people who are unemployed, the more people who are out of jobs, uh, the more costly it's going to be. Uh, there was an estimate um, that ACOS, the Council of Social Services, has for many years been recommending an increase in, in New Start. They, um, their most recent uh, budget submission was recommending a $95 a week increase in New Start. If we raised... Um, job seeker to the age pension level, it would be about um, $185 a week, so twice what ACOS has recommended in the past. The um, What would happen is that in the short run, uh, well, as I said, if, if we use the same number of people as were on payments when ACOS made their estimate, uh, which was about $850,000, uh, that would uh, be double the cost, but then there's also the cost of helping people on parenting payment and a range of other youth payments um, so that would go up. So so I think we'd be talking about $9 billion uh, a year, the full year cost, uh, based on 850000 uh, based on about a million people receiving it. Now, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's um, there's currently about 1.6 million people receiving JobSeeker and, um, you know, Unfortunately, it could be you know, two million or more in September. It's very hard to tell. So, if it was two million, we'd be talking about um, you'd be talking about eighteen billion dollars, right? Um, or or, or, so, or t- between eighteen and twenty billion dollars. So, it's um, it's a very high cost um, from some perspectives. Now, having said that, uh, as you mentioned, the um, uh, while governments like to argue that there's no magic money tree, um, which is an expression that um, both the government here and the government in the United Kingdom have used in recent years. Uh, yeah, when they needed to, they came up with $130 billion for uh, the job keepers' payment. Um, now, there's in thinking about the sort of $20 billion in a, in a full year, the other thing to remember is that in September, the government, if it doesn't do this, is going to be taking a lot of money out of the economy. Um, they're going to be uh, dramatically uh, reducing the amount of support they provide. So the $20 billion, while it sounds an awful lot of money, uh, is actually a lot less than the money that's going to be coming out of the economy. And uh, if they felt they just had to continue the current arrangements, um, that would be much more expensive than than this increase in the base rates of working age payments. So the cost, you know, you have to compare the cost of doing this with the, um, the cost of what we're doing at the moment and also the cost, the economic cost, if we don't do this. Now, 
I'm not a macroeconomist. Uh, there's very good ones in the Crawford School you could talk to about this. My reading of the what people are saying is, though, that in the short run, uh, it would be a serious mistake, uh, economic mistake, to try and uh, tr dramatically reduce the budget deficit in a few years. Um, that it would, you know, it would be contractionary. So you'd be trying to come out of uh, the biggest economic contraction. It, you know, in Australian history, um, and then try to contract some more. So that, so, so I personally, my, as I said, it's my reading of uh, uh, other economists is that um, uh, that in the short run we don't need to worry about the debt. You know, governments and people often think of the analogy of the household, and they say, well, you know, you can't live beyond your means. Well, most households in Australia and Many in other countries um, aim to have mortgages, and you know you don't you, you have a mortgage which is a debt that you have, which is many times your annual income, and you pay it off over thirty-five or forty years. And I think that's what we need to think about in Australia. We need to think that yes, we're going to have a much larger debt, um, but we if we try to pay it off too quickly, um, we're actually going to make the problem worse, not better. And that um, we need to think about uh, it will take decades to, to, to pay back this debt. But that's, you know, what happened with the, the Second World War, right? It took us decades to, to um, uh, grow out of that debt. And, um, you know, the economic impact of this is so big that I think we need to think in terms of decades, not, you know, the next two or three years. Finally, many would argue that the government's resistance to previously increasing the rate of New Star wasn't purely on economic terms. There was also some ideology that underpins this. So do you think that the sort of economic pragmatist arguments that you set out there in terms of trying to avoid that double dip recession at the end of the day will prove more powerful to the government than their own feelings and stance towards uh, the rate of uh, New Start stroke job seeker? Well, as you said, it sort of appears to be the case that uh, government attitudes towards the unemployed have been very much um, in the last, uh, well, for quite a long period of time, have been very much the idea of them and us, you know, that there's these people who are, you know, this is not very pleasant Australian term, dull bludgers, um, you know, that they're, they're not making a productive contribution to the economy, and whereas there's the rest of us who are sort of fine, upstanding taxpayers. Uh, so there's been very much that um, that sort of dichotomy between between them and us, uh, and it's been expressed not only in not raising new start, but through a whole range of other initiatives. So, you know, sort of the government's proposed um, uh, drug testing uh, people applying for for social security benefits. Um, there's the um, uh, the cashless welfare card that the have introduced in various locations. Uh, we have really significantly higher levels of requirements for people to actively look for work in Australia than in many other countries. So there's a lot of stigmatisation and um, yeah, sort of administrative burden that's been placed that has been placed on social security recipients. So it's a pretty strong theme in. Australian policy, I mean, it also applies in other countries as well, but uh, maybe a bit more so here. Uh, but I think the um, 
hopefully the pragmatic arguments. I mean, we need to think of the social security system as part of our essential economic infrastructure. When you look back at the uh, the first stimulus packages um, not all that many weeks ago, uh, the way the government delivered it was, um, you know, the $750 payment to households was through the social security system. The social security system is, you know, one of the few administrative mechanisms governments have for getting money directly to households. Uh, and the expansion of job seeker was also the same. It's, you know, that we have a, you know, it's got problems, but we have a pretty relatively efficient social security system that's able to get money to, out to people uh, and is, you know, at times like this, is a, an essential tool of economic management. Um, so I think that we need to think about the efficiency arguments. I, th- I think the fact that the government, uh, I presume under the advice from the Treasury, uh, so quickly completely reversed some of the things it's done in the past uh, is a sign that, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're pragmatic. And so I, I have hope that they will pragmatically try to deal with the, you know, the very substantial economic problems that seem to face, face us in the next, um, next years or more. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So thanks so much, Peter, for uh, sharing your insights with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Listeners, we really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, you might want to leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Acast and Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you want to get in touch with us, send us your feedback, questions, thoughts or suggestions. They're always welcome. You can find us on Twitter as APPS Policy Forum, that's Apps Policy Forum, or send us a good old-fashioned email, podcast at policyforum.net. And a quick reminder that the best way to connect with us is through our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. Don't forget to join us there. We'll be back soon with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, stay safe, keep your distance, look after one another, and cheerio for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.